I've really enjoyed uh, the singing this morning. You sing very well. And uh, we feel like we're at home. As we walked up to the building yesterday, uh, checking in for 10 days in the uh, Hotel Lebanon, um, we, uh, we felt very much at home. And Julie said, it's like coming home every time we come back here. I don't know why that is. Maybe you treat us nicely. Uh, not many people, no, everybody treats us nicely. We've had a wonderful time here in the U.S. We never expected to be here. We came for two months, and it's ended up being seven months um, or eight months or nine months. I don't know what it's going to be by the time we leave, but uh, uh, we've been well-received and well-cared for. Uh, we had a lot of unknowns before us, as did you. I'm not sure that uh, when we would be able to return to our home. We had the added burden of my 90-year-old mom, who was uh, struggling with cancer, and we knew if we were gone for just a couple of months, it would be more likely we would get to see her before she went to heaven, but she didn't wait uh, for us. She waited a little bit longer, but uh, four weeks ago today, she slipped from this earth into the arms of her Savior. We were not with her, but our two sons uh, saw her the, the day she passed. And so we're so grateful for that. Uh, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We look forward to that day when we will see her again in her glorified body. And uh, so we rejoice in that. I know this has been a challenging time. At 3 o'clock this morning, I was awakened, uh, and I prayed for several people. I prayed for your president and for his wife and family and for some of your government officials who are in the midst of a trial right now. We have, I'm not an American, but I have great admiration for your country and its people. And uh, we are eagerly uh, seeking God's will for this upcoming election, as are you. Uh, people all over the world are watching with interest. And um, November 3rd is going to be a very important uh, day. And I'm planning not to be here for that. Uh, we have booked uh, flights out of Atlanta November 1st, and uh, you know, even though we've booked flights, it doesn't mean we get to go because we've been watching the forums of uh, South Africans stranded in, uh, in the U.S., and flights get, can get canceled for numerous reasons, so we have no guarantee, but we are trusting the Lord, and we believe that he has a perfect plan for us. But I must say that these, this time has been challenging for all of us, and there have been moments where I'm sure your faith has wavered and perhaps even been weakened. Uh, and so I ask you the question this morning, have you ever felt or do you now feel as though you're slipping away from God? It can happen to any of us at any time, because if you give discouragement an inch, it will steal a mile. And before you know it, you'll be growing old in your relation, growing cold and old in your relationship with Christ. Well, let's face it, life can be exasperating at times and uh, also very strange. And if you live long enough, your faith is bound to be challenged many times. Psalm 73 has something to say to discouraged Christians today. It tells the story of a godly man who felt his faith slipping away. And even though these words were written 3,000 years ago, they might just as well have been written today. Uh, you might read these words and say, well, I was just like Asaph except for this. He kept his faith, but I lost mine. He found God again, 
But I don't really know what to believe anymore. If you've ever struggled with the perplexities of life, this psalm is for you. If, you've, if you ever felt your faith beginning to slip away, listen up this morning and you will learn about a godly man who faced what you might be facing now. So let's take a look at Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, or, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for holotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. Well, obviously, the introduction there is clear. It, it tells us that this is a psalm of Asaph. And we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that he was a worship leader at the temple in Jerusalem during the days of King David. As I considered that fact, I realized that many of the musicians I have known through the years have a unique sensitivity of spirit that comes from thinking and feeling deeply. You might call Psalm 73 the view from the bandstand or the, the view from the orchestra pit as Asaph shares his heart. In this psalm, Asaph invite, invites us to go with him on a journey from doubt to faith. This psalm has two parts. 
The first 14 verses pose a question, and the final 14 verses give an answer. In the first section, Asaph wonders why the wicked seem to do so well in the world. And then in the last 14 verses, we see faith leading him from despair and anger to peace and acceptance. So let's take a look at the first half of the psalm where doubt raises a question. Asaph begins by confessing his near-fatal crisis of faith. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. That's a great start. But then he becomes a little more transparent where he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I suppose the key to the psalm really comes for us in verse 3, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And now this is a theme that is, cuts pretty close to the bone for most of us, or maybe all of us in some way or other, but maybe it, it's very evident for you today. Perhaps this is your struggle See, if you look hard enough, you can find someone somewhere who seems to be happier, more content, better off, with a bigger salary, better health, fewer problems, a better life, a nicer home, more connections with more prestige, more money in the bank, and in general, they just seem to be higher up the proverbial ladder than you are. We most certainly live in a world that likes to keep score. We notice those who are doing better than we are. Yet we all have a niche where we fit, a place where we belong, our own little spot in this vast pecking order of life. And that's okay. We can generally accept that as a reality of life, but we can become aggravated if we think too long and hard on the issue. I'm often around people who overthink stuff and gets them into trouble in their minds. Maybe that's you. Sometimes those people who seem to be above you aren't very nice people. Quite frankly, you might consider them to be numbskulls or cheats or outright scoundrels, and yet they seem to be doing just fine, oblivious to all around them. It's annoying enough to have to share space on this planet with lousy people, but often we work with them, we go to school with them, we socialize with them, we take orders from them, we serve on committees with them, and sometimes we even have to live right next door to them. So let's face it, it can be frustrating to feel that you've been passed by unworthy people in this great race of life. Asaph felt that way. But it's not just Asaph's problem, is it? It's our problem also. But there's something deeper bothering Asaph as he works his way through this problem. See, it's not just the prosperity of the wicked, which is bad enough. The problem here is that the wicked are prospering while the righteous suffer. Now, from a strictly analytical point of view, that just stinks, If we really love God's people, and if we really are God's people, and we try, however clumsily, to do His will, if He really does love us like He says He loves us, why does He let the bad guys get away with murder while the good guys constantly have to take it on the chin? 
That's a troubling question. And I know you're asking that question too. What possible good could be served by allowing this kind of injustice in the world? What is God up to? A man by the name of Sheldon Vanauken, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, in his book entitled A A Severe Mercy, frames the issue this way, and I'm quoting, If only villains got broken backs or cancers, if only cheaters and crooks got Parkinson's disease, we would see a sort of celestial justice in the universe. But as it is, a sweet-tempered child who lies dying of a brain tumor, a happy young wife sees her husband and child killed before her eyes by a drunken driver, and we soundlessly scream at the stars asking, why? And we ask questions like, why are evildoers raised to power while the righteous are imprisoned? Why did God let Chinese tyrants live to a ripe old age while godly pastors suffered for years in slave camps? Why does a gifted missionary contract brain cancer in the midst of an effective ministry? Why? Psalm 73 paints a vivid picture of the prosperity of the wicked. Notice in verse 4, they have good health. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They live a good life, verse 5. They are not plagued by human ills. They are proud, verse 6. Pride is their necklace. They wallow in iniquity, verse 7. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They speak maliciously, verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. They are boastful, verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They are popular, verse 10. Their people turn to them. They are blasphemers, verse 11. They say, how can God know? They enjoy carefree lives, verse 12, always carefree. They are filthy rich, verse 12. They increase in wealth. The bad guys always seem to get the good stuff. We must admit that this portrait is often very true. It describes in stunning detail what life without God looks like. Verse 7 speaks of their callous hearts. What an indictment that is, to have a callous heart. They are the way they are, they like the way they are, and they seem to live without any guilt whatsoever. Now, while this isn't a perfect description of every person who is ungodly, it will do just fine as a portrait of a certain class of sinners. And we've all known people who fit this pattern. Now let's think of Asaph for just a minute. As good a man as he was, he actually made three fundamental mistakes as he pondered these things. And we ought to learn from his mistakes because we make the same mistakes ourselves many times. The first mistake he makes here is that he's judging only what he sees. There is more to life than what meets the eye. It's quite true that some of the wicked prosper some of the time, but simple experience tells you that not all the wicked get away with it, or else the prisons would be empty. It is still true today that the way of the transgressor is hard. The second thing that he 
seems to omit is he's leaving God out of the equation. The Bible never denies that the wicked do prosper on occasions. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 25 speaks of the pleasures of sin for a season. People sin because they like it. But that's not the end of the story. The first bite of forbidden fruit may taste sweet, but the end of it is nothing but bitterness. For the wicked, this earth is the only heaven they will ever know. But there's a third thing that Asaph seems to be missing here. He's forgetting about the life that is to come. This is the insight that seemed to bring Asaph back to his senses. You see, God has ordained a day of judgment for the entire human race, and no one will escape. Even in this life, the wicked are often punished. But there's also the truth that they will then go out into eternity to meet the God of justice who sees all things. Hebrews 9.27 is completely true. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Literally, he's saying... Uh, every morning brings me pain. Let me back up there. I missed a paragraph. Asaph seems to hit rock bottom in verses 13 and 14. Here he says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Every morning brings me pain. What an awful frame of mind to be in. I had the chance to speak to a a gentleman who's been in ministry many years recently, and we could tell by his demeanor that he was angry and frustrated and bitter. And uh, early on into the conversation, we could tell that the thing that was missing in his life was a deep sense of joy and satisfaction in his Lord. Joy was not there. Every morning, it appears, he wakes up plagued by the injustices of life. What an awful place to be in. Perhaps you felt that way at one time or another. And you think to yourself, Lord, if this is the way you treat your friends, I might as well be your enemy. In fact, they seem to be better off than I am. Christians can fall into that trap. Maybe you're there. See, Asaph is not being objective, but he is being totally honest with God. And in that transparency with God, he reveals that his heart is not right. He has lost his joy and his satisfaction, and he is miserable. If the story were to end there, if the psalm were to end there, we would all be in depression. But we're only halfway through. In the final section, verses 15 through 28, faith finds an answer. Thankfully, Asaph comes to the right answer. His faith is satisfied, even though it happens in stages. The first thing we see is that, he sees, is that some things should not carelessly be shared with others. He says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. It's a very interesting verse. It's a very telling verse. Asaph recognizes that not every doubt needs to be shared with everyone. 
Sometimes we do need to talk things out, but when we do, we ought to find a counselor with, with uh, maturity and wisdom to understand, and if necessary, to overlook some of the foolish things we're going to say. I'm all for being honest with others. But there is a fine line between honesty and loose talk. Indiscriminate sharing may hurt some of God's children who don't need to hear about your doubts when they have enough troubles of their own. And maybe this is what Jesus was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount, right towards the end of Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, where he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? I've used this principle a lot in counseling where people struggle with their anxieties and their fears. Quit talking about it so much. Quit telling everybody what your anxieties and your fears are. Because as you do that, you're just making mountains out of them. And you're hurting the hearer. Asaph comes to terms with this truth. Most of the time we won't understand why things happen the way they do. Why does one man die and another man lives? Why does a reprobate man get rich while some of the godly sink into abject poverty? Why did the tornado destroy his home and not the one next to it? How did that man never get caught cheating while another man plays by the rules and loses his job? Those questions and million others like them can never be fully answered this side of heaven. I don't know why God allowed COVID to hit South Africa where 70% of the population are in abject poverty. And for six months, many have literally starved if it were not for the good graces of those with some means to sacrificially help them, such as our team on the ground in, in Nizna, and I'm so grateful for what they have done. We can't answer these questions, this side of heaven. But the point here is that the first thing Asaph realizes to find satisfaction, he's got to quit telling everything he knows about his fears and his anxieties. He's got to quit telling everyone around him. Some things should not be carelessly shared with others. The second thing he learns here is he he goes to the right place to find an answer. I love this. We see a great turning point in verse 17. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. When we are in God's presence, we see things differently. Recently, I read an article about worship where the author made a point I'd never considered before. He said, and I'm quoting him, Nothing seems more truly countercultural than people gathering to sing praise to God. If worship doesn't seem radical to us, it's because we've become anesthetized to its power. I got a sense this morning, you were glad to be back together singing. Last time we were here several months ago, there was nobody in this room as I preached. This is way better. Uh, let, let me Let me... Quote that, uh, what he said again. Nothing seems more truly countercultural than people gathering to sing praise to God. If worship doesn't seem radical to us, it's because we've become anesthetized to its power. What you did this morning, and by being here this morning, you're, you're in the will of God, doing what he prescribes the way worship is to be conducted, together. 
never grow anesthetized to its power. It may help you to understand that in the Roman Empire, the early Christians were sometimes accused of atheism because they worshipped a God they couldn't see. They had no idols. They offered no sacrifices. And when they met together, they sang and prayed, listened to the Word being read, and shared the Lord's Supper. It was so utterly unlike what others did that it seemed heretical, dangerous, and even atheistic. And so rumors spread across the empire that these Christ followers were worshiping a man who had been crucified and then had risen from the dead. It was bizarre, preposterous, absurd. Who could believe such a thing? The early Christians were considered counter-cultural, radical, rebellious from the perspective of the traditional religious crowd. So the question is, What happens when Christians worship? Someone tried to define worship with a statement that is both beautiful and profound. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Beautifully stated. And all of that is utterly counter-cultural. You don't get that by watching Fox News, even though they try to be quite religious, I notice, in uh, how they portray things. You don't get it from Netflix. Come to think of it, you won't get that in the great universities of the world either. Harvard or Cambridge can teach you how to think on a high level, but if you want to worship, you need to move into the presence of God, preferably with God's people. Our worship services ought to prepare us to be countercultural agents for the kingdom of God. By our praying, by our testifying, by our singing, by our giving, by our preaching, by practicing believers' baptism and observing the Lord's Supper through fellowship and affirmation, regardless of the setting and irrespective of the style, every worship service ought to be a great object lesson that screams this, we are not like the world, this is who we are, we are different, this is why we exist, this is what we believe, and this is how we live. And because the pressure of the world is so constantly with us, we must use every opportunity in worship to do for us what worship did for Asaph. It brought him back to his senses. Why do you think your pastors call you back as regularly as possible to come together to worship God, to do all of these things that uh, describe what worship is for the local assembly It brings us constantly back to our senses, and it helps us regain a right perspective. And for Asaph, his faith is satisfied, first of all, by seeing that some things should not be carelessly shared with others. Secondly, that going to the right places to find the answer. But thirdly, his faith is satisfied by seeing the end of the wicked and realizing It's not a pretty sight. Verses 18 through 20. Surely you set them in slippery places. 
You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So God's message is, why would you envy the wicked? They're going down. They don't know it. They don't see it. They don't believe it. But it doesn't matter. God has spoken, and His Word cannot be broken. The wicked will come to a bad end. They won't be laughing and cheering and mocking and enjoying their cocktails in the high life. And they won't be getting rich off their fraud in that terrible day. For the moment, they seem to have it good. But soon enough, Judgment Day will come. And we can say three things about their destiny. First of all, their judgment is sudden and unexpected. Secondly, their, judge, their destruction is complete and irreversible. And third, God's wrath is personal and inescapable. Now, you wouldn't want to be there with them, and I know you're not. I'm speaking to the converted here. For the most part, I, I would hope most of you in this room have settled your eternal destiny. And it's not going to be with the wicked. You would not trade places with them. In 1719, Isaac Watts published a metrical version of Psalm 73. When he came to this part of the psalm, here are the lyrics that he wrote. There, as in some prophetic glass, I saw the sinner's feet, high mounted on a slippery place beside a fiery pit. I heard the wretch profanely boast, till at thy frown he fell. His honors in a dream were lost, and he awakes in hell. Well, these striking images force us to a solemn conclusion. God personally rejects the wicked. Because they had no time for him, he sends them to hell forever. Right now they stand on slippery ground, but soon the trapdoor will open and down they go. It reminds me of the words of Jesus to the religious hypocrites in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. One day he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So Asaph's faith is satisfied by firstly understanding that some things should not be carelessly shared with others. That going to the right place to find the answer, it involves seeing the end of the wicked and it's not a pretty sight. But number four, his faith was satisfied when he recognized how foolish he had been. Verses 21 and 22. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. You see, true repentance looks like this. It recognizes the sin, it calls it by name, it goes to the root of the matter, and it admits the truth. One version says it a little more graphically. He says, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. That's telling it like it is. How quickly envy and bitterness corrupt the heart. They render us senseless and ignorant, really no better than brute beasts. Through the eyes of faith, Asaph recognizes how foolish he had been. Number five, his faith is satisfied by gaining a new, ver a new view of God. 
In one of the high moments of the Old Testament, Asaph looks forward to a day when he will be with the Lord forever. He says in verses 23 and following, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you share that same testimony and passion for what God has in store for you, my friend? Here's the believer's personal protection. In the past, you took my hand. In the present, you guide me with your counsel. In the future, you will take me into glory. That is simply amazing. What do the wicked have that can simply match this? What can equal the personal presence of God himself? How much is it worth to know that someday you will be with the Lord in glory? In his sermon on Psalm 73, Robert Rayburn put it this way, The wealth of the wicked means nothing. They have nothing. Without God, without forgiveness, without heaven, they have nothing. With God, we have everything and always have everything, no matter the outward circumstances of our lives. It's a grand thing to be a Christian when you die if you know Jesus. The best is yet to come. And that isn't a political statement. It's to encourage those of you who have faith in Jesus Christ. The wicked are like chaff blowing in the wind. Let them have their trinkets and their baubles. Let them have their moment in the sun. For the wicked, this earth is the only heaven they will know. For the righteous, this earth is the only hell we will ever endure. In the end, we will discover that nothing on earth or in heaven is more desirable than God. We may die, but even death itself cannot sever our relationship with God because it is as secure as God is. As long as God is in his heaven, we will be with him in glory. No wicked man can take that from us. Asaph's faith is satisfied by understanding that some things should not be carelessly shared with others. His faith is satisfied by going to the right place to find the answer. His faith is satisfied by seeing the end of the wicked as as not being a pretty sight. His faith is satisfied by recognizing how foolish he had been. And his faith is uh, is satisfied by gaining a new view of God. And finally, number six. His faith is satisfied by discerning the essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 27. His faith is satisfied by discerning the essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. Sometimes it's hard to tell in our pluralistic society, in our religiously inoculated world. Verse 27 says, For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for a harlot tree. But it is good for me, verse 28, to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. There's the contrast between the two. Well, there are a few simple conclusions 
And then we're done. First of all, in this life, the wicked sometimes prosper while the righteous seem to take it on the chin. We've got that. We understand that. We accept that. Number two, as long as we play the comparison game, our lives will be filled with envy, anger, and frustration. Now, that's really difficult for us in this uh, very materialistic world not to make comparisons. But it hurts us every time we do that. Number three, those who forget God in this life will one day discover that all they lived for will be suddenly and utterly destroyed. Number four, those who cling to God in times of confusion will find that He is more than enough for this life and the life to come. You've imbibed in a little bit of that over the last six months, I'm pretty sure. Number five, since God is more than enough, when we are tempted to despair... Let us instead proclaim God's sufficiency to anyone who will listen. Now, there's a great counseling tip. You're struggling with discouragement? Step out of your little zone and go and encourage someone else. And by encouraging someone else, you will be encouraged yourself. It's true. Try it. It's the same principle. You want to learn stuff? Become a teacher. Start teaching anybody, everybody what you know, and it'll, it'll in, get you going on learning more stuff to teach more stuff. That's a good principle. Number six, God gives prosperity to the wicked because that's all they're going to get. That's it for them. Can't take it with them. You know, preachers of old used to say, you've never seen a hearse pulling a, a U-Haul. Oh, you haven't been to Africa then. All the hearses pulled U-Hauls. I don't know why they do that, but they do. So I can't use that illustration anymore. Number seven. He gives us his guiding hand through difficulties because things are only going to get better for those who love the Lord. It's only going to get better. It doesn't get worse for us. It gets better and better. Now, I began my sermon with one simple sentence, a question, really. Have you ever felt or do you now feel as though you are slipping away from Him? Some of you might answer yes to that question. You genuinely feel like you are slipping away. I don't think it's... Wrong to be confused or angry or perplexed at the things you see around you. Sometimes life seems so messed up that we look to heaven and say, What is going on? What are you doing? You begin to grow colder in your relationship with the Lord if you allow that to fester, and it seems as though you're slipping away. But listen to me very carefully this morning, my friend. Be assured from God's Word that you actually cannot slip away, even though you may feel as if you are. No one has said it better than the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going to close with Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Don't turn there, just listen to it. And while I'm reading this, if if you're here this morning without Christ... If you've never found satisfaction in your soul by your repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you need to settle that. And we're standing by this morning to help you with that. 
Seek me out or one of the other pastors after the service and get your eternal destiny settled once and for all. This passage of Scripture that I'm reading is for you who know Christ but feel like you've grown cold. You become negligent in your spiritual fervor and you feel as if you're slipping away. Listen to these inspired words. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes, also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are all killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.